Hello, dreamers. I hope that all of you are holding up well as the end of the year is creeping up on us. So because there's been so much going on lately in the world of crime, I decided to throw together a little bit of an update episode. So welcome to the hoaxiest hoax of them all, 2021, a year in review. The high-profile criminal trials have been flying through the courts like crazy this year. Maybe it's COVID catch-up time or something. I've never seen trials come through so fast like this. So I went Googling around to see if there was any sort of 2021 wrap-up of the various criminal trials that have finished up this year, and there really wasn't anything out there like that. So to really go back and dig through all of the podcasts that I've listened to and the things that I've watched on streaming TV so that we could reflect back on them. We've been hearing a lot about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and what's that woman's name? Ghislaine, is that how you say her name? Ghislaine Maxwell. Her, her, the spelling of her name does not match the way that I'm hearing it come out of people's mouths on TV. I personally think that's the first time I've ever said it myself, Ghislaine Maxwell. So she's that socialite who is on trial right now for luring underage girls to be sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein and apparently sometimes for herself. I think those are two things that are still ongoing right now as the year winds down. Scott Peterson was in court recently and was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I guess that's a win for him considering he's been on death row all these years. And I'm sure Lacey would have loved to have had another chance at life too with baby Connor. But clearly things in this world are not always fair. A few days ago, court filings showed that convicted murderer Derek Chauvin will plead guilty to violating the civil rights of Mr. George Floyd when he held him down on the ground, prone and handcuffed, with his knee pressed into his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds, killing him. Because that's what you do when somebody allegedly attempts to pass a counterfeit $20 bill and resists being placed in the backseat of a patrol car because of claustrophobia. In April, Chauvin was convicted of George's murder and was subsequently sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. And to that, I say, good riddance. And speaking of former Minnesota cops, Kim Potter is on trial right now, if I'm not mistaken. She's been charged with manslaughter for the shooting death of Dante Wright. This unfortunate incident just so happened to take place in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial, which was happening not too far from the location of the shooting. In fact, her trial is happening in the same exact courthouse. Potter was a 26-year veteran of the police force, and she insisted that She mistakenly grabbed her firearm instead of her taser 
and the shooting was a horrible accident. However, her defense is saying that the use of deadly force would have been justified because Dante could have possibly dragged her and her fellow officer if he wasn't stopped. So it'll be kind of interesting to see what the outcome of this case will be because I'm curious to know when does an accident become a crime. Another case that wrapped up recently were those three men in Georgia who chased down and murdered 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery, Travis McMichael, his dad Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan were all convicted on various charges, including murder. And you know there was a chance that these three could have gotten away with that because when Ahmad was murdered, nothing happened initially. The Glynn County Police Department said that the DA's office had given them instructions to not arrest anyone at the time that Ahmad was shot. Later on, the DA recused himself from the case because of a personal connection to one of the defendants. Unfortunately, at the time that Ahmad was murdered, the country was on the brink of shutdown and quarantine because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But there were two things going on in the background that helped to bring about indictments on this case. One is a mother's love and devotion to her son. And the other is the stupidity and audaciousness of the McMichaels and Brian in thinking that releasing the cell phone video that they recorded of themselves stalking, attacking, and murdering Ahmad would actually help make their case that they were defending their neighborhood by effecting a citizen's arrest of Ahmad for allegedly breaking into the frame of a home under construction. Two days after their video went viral, the three of them were arrested and charged with murder. And that was an arrest that took 74 days longer than it should have. In the wake of this, former Brunswick, Georgia District Attorney Jackie Johnson was indicted in September of 2021 for showing favoritism to Gregory McDaniels, who was a former subordinate of hers during the investigation into Ahmad's murder and for obstructing law enforcement by ordering Travis McDaniel to not be arrested. Georgia legislation effectively repealed its citizens' arrest laws as of May of 2021. So you can no longer claim that you're trying to carry out a citizen's arrest anymore in the state of Georgia. A trial going on at the same time as the Ahmad Arbery was the murder trial involving Kyle Rittenhouse. Because that case has been hotly debated and is divided by which side of the political spectrum you align yourself with, I'm not going to get into the left and the right and the right and the wrong of it all. Kyle Rittenhouse was 17 years old at the time when on August 25th, 2020, he fatally shot two people and wounded a third in the city of Kenosha, Wisconsin. The shootings took place during the civil unrest that followed the shooting of Jacob Black by Officer Rustin Shesky. Jacob was shot seven times, four times 
in the back and three times in his side, and he was paralyzed from the waist down. Kyle Rittenhouse said that he had gone to Kenosha with a friend armed with rifles, ostensibly to protect businesses. But he ended up fatally shooting 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum, who was not armed, but was apparently chasing Rittenhouse down. After Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum, he began to flee from the scene, at which time he was pursued by a crowd of people, including 26-year-old Anthony Huber, who Rittenhouse also fatally shot. And I really don't want to split hairs here, but in the Facebook group, when the verdict on this case came down, and we discussed this briefly, I commented that I was okay with the verdict, that there was video evidence of Rittenhouse being hit or attacked by someone holding a skateboard. And someone in the group said that I unfairly characterized this as an attack with a skateboard when it was really an attempt to disarm an active shooter or something to that effect. But either way, I didn't think it was a brilliant idea for Rittenhouse to have inserted himself into a civil unrest situation when he really had no business being there. And I believe there is some question as to whether or not he was even legally carrying the rifle that he had with him or not. But I also don't think it was a brilliant idea either for Mr. Rosenbaum and Mr. Huber and the other gentleman that Rittenhouse shot and wounded, Mr. Grosskurtz, who was armed, by the way, to have attempted to pursue and disarm someone carrying an AR-15 who had already demonstrated that he was willing to use it. It was just a whole bunch of really, really bad choices on everybody's part. Poor judgment. But anyway, Gross Kurtz turned out, I believe, to be quite an ineffective witness. Um, the jury ended up finding Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty of everything that he was charged with. Now he wants to go to college and maybe become a nurse or an attorney. But it's such a divisive case that I'm starting to make myself uncomfortable talking about it. So let's move on. Robert Durst. Ah, uh, yes. The guy who was finally convicted of murder after getting away with a whole lot of shady deaths everywhere he went. He had long been suspected of being involved in the disappearance of his wife, Kathleen Durst, back in 1982. Then, a friend of his named Susan Berman, who was murdered in 2000 for allegedly knowing a little too much about Durst's involvement with his wife's disappearance, he came under suspicion of that, but managed to get away with it for a really long time, because it basically remained unsolved until recently. But things didn't end there, because in 2003, Durst was acquitted of murdering his neighbor, a gentleman by the name of Morris Black back in 2001. However, he was convicted of tampering with evidence when he dismembered and dumped Mr. Black's body and body parts into Galveston Bay. So I don't know how that makes any kind of sense, but okay. Durst finally went on trial this year for Susan Berman's murder, for which he was convicted of in September, and he was sentenced to life in prison. It's possible that he may be made to face murder charges in the case involving his missing wife. It's been almost 40 years and dude does not look like he's in that great a shape. But I know it's important for Kathleen's family to get some kind of resolution to this. 
I don't think this old man is going to make it long enough to face justice in that case. And if he does, I'll be pretty surprised. And who knows, maybe he'll decide to reveal where Kathleen's remains are so that they can pound out some sort of plea deal with him and just get this whole thing over with. So next, let's talk about Mr. Robert Sylvester Kelly, also known as R. Kelly, also known as Federal Inmate Number 09627-035. For nearly three decades, this guy has been repeatedly accused of child sexual abuse. He's been hit with criminal charges. He's been sued in civil court. In 2000, he was indicted on 21 counts of producing images of child sexual abuse, but ended up being acquitted, and he always denied these charges. A 2019 documentary entitled Surviving R. Kelly was released, which had numerous women discuss being sexually abused by him. And with that, we had the beginning of the cancellation of R. Kelly. A month after the documentary, Kelly was indicted on 11 counts of sexual abuse in Chicago. Then in July of 2019, he was taken into federal custody on charges of sex crimes, human trafficking, having or making images and materials depicting child sexual abuse, racketeering and obstruction of justice. He was held in custody the whole time pending trial, and in September of 2021, a federal grand jury found Kelly guilty on nine of the 22 charges. He will be sentenced in May of 2022, and he is going to go on trial again for producing material depicting images of child sexual abuse in August of 2022. 24 year old Christian Rivera was convicted in May of 2021 of the murder of American University of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts. She vanished while on a jog near her home in Brooklyn, Iowa. The month following, Rivera was named a suspect in her disappearance when the investigation led to surveillance video which showed Rivera driving his car following Molly as she was jogging. He led police to Molly's remains a little more than a month after she vanished. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on August 30th, 2021. Molly's death became a central issue when it was revealed that Rivera had been in the United States illegally, which led to an attempt to politicize Molly's death by calling for stronger Im immigration policies. Molly's family insisted that her death not be used to further anybody's political agenda, with which I agree. There are plenty of arguments to be made that don't necessitate using someone's private tragedy in such a public way. Our next criminal scumbag has been a stand-up comedian just about as long as he's been a serial sexual predator. You all know who I'm talking about. The loser of the most rescinded honorary awards and degrees ever in history, Bill Cosby. Apparently, this was the worst kept secret in Hollywood ever because nobody seemed to bat an eyelash at the fact that Cosby had been drugging and sexually assaulting women for decades just because he's Bill Cosby, America's dad. Can you imagine being one of his survivors? and hearing him referred to as America's dad for all these years? 
Doesn't that just give you the creeps? Imagine how those survivors felt. Who's America's dad now? Apparently, Eddie Murphy thinks it's Eddie Murphy. As you know, him and Bill Cosby, I guess, had this long-standing rivalry. And now that Bill Cosby has been in all this legal trouble and has gone to jail for sexual assault and all this stuff, Eddie Murphy's like, what now? Huh? Yeah, who's America's dad now? Who would have thought that we would have had a relatively unknown stand-up comedian named Hannibal Burris to thank for dragging Cosby's secrets out of the dark corners of entertainment and shining a big, huge light on an even bigger problem that has plagued this industry for far too long. In Philadelphia, in October of 2021, Hannibal was doing his stand-up bit about the never-ending rape allegations that had been made against Bill Cosby. It had been going on for so long, but what really got under Hannibal's skin was the way that Cosby had this long-standing gripe about young black men and how they dressed, and he was so critical of their lifestyle. Because Bill Cosby has set the gold standard as to what young black men should aspire to, right? Mm-hmm. And while Hannibal was critical about Cosby standing up on some holier-than-thou moral high ground and putting down people like himself, young black men, you know, men who have may very well looked up to Bill Cosby at one time, and so Hannibal said in his stand-up bit, yeah, but you raped women, Bill Cosby, so that kind of brings you down a couple of notches. He was recorded doing this routine in Philly, which is Cosby's hometown, right? And so the audience kind of like, they rumbled and moaned and kind of like, mm, they were sort of incredulous about it. And Hannibal, he doubled down. He was like, go home and Google Bill Cosby rape and check out the results. Well, apparently America went and Googled Bill Cosby rape and checked out the results. Hannibal had been telling this joke in his set for several months by then. But that performance in Philadelphia, it went viral and the media went wild. Hashtag Me Too had actually had its beginnings in 2006 on MySpace. But if I had to say if there was a catalyst for the movement to really start to take off, sexual predator and serial rapist Bill Cosby had a lot to do with it. Cosby lit the fuse and Harvey Weinstein was like, step aside, I got this. It was like this watershed moment that triggered the swift and unforgiving takedown of the men who used to be in powerful positions across this country, whether it was in entertainment or in news or in sports where sexual misconduct was no longer going to be ignored or quietly swept under the rug. Men like Cosby, Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Steve Wynn, Roman Polanski, Danny Masterson, Russell Simmons. That is just a drop in the bucket. If you look at men who have been taken down because of sexual misconduct allegations, the numbers are in the hundreds. But anyway, following Hannibal's viral takedown, Cosby became the central figure in numerous allegations of sexual assault, rape, 
drug facilitated sexual assault, sexual battery, child abuse, and sexual misconduct dating back to the mid-1960s. He victimized women across this country, including one province in Canada, in a crime spree that spanned more than four decades. Cosby has repeatedly denied these allegations. Most of his crimes, unfortunately, were past the statute of limitations, with the exception of the allegations made by a woman named Andrea Constand. She had filed a civil lawsuit against him in 2005, and the transcript of Cosby's deposition in that case was released to the media. He admitted to having sex with Constand, and the interaction involved the use of quaaludes. He acknowledged having sex with numerous women using the drug that he knew was illegal. Based on that information from his deposition, he was charged, tried, and ultimately convicted in April of 2018 on three counts of aggravated indecent sexual assault against Constand, and he was sentenced to three to ten years in prison. However, after a number of denied appeals, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned Cosby's conviction this year. You see, what had happened was, in February of 2005, District Attorney Bruce Castor declared in a press conference that due to insufficient evidence rendering a conviction unattainable, he declined to authorize the filing of criminal charges against Cosby regarding allegations Andrea Constad made against him. He said that in order to compel Cosby to testify in a civil lawsuit brought by Constand without the right to incriminate himself as accorded by the Fifth Amendment so that Constand could win damages from Cosby, Cosby testified that he had given Constand Benadryl and that he had separately provided quaaludes to women that he wanted to have sex with. Cosby settled the civil lawsuit by paying $3.38 million. Six out of the seven Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices interpreted Castor's 2005 press release as a promise to not prosecute Cosby, leading him to provide testimony in his civil lawsuit that was later used as key evidence in his criminal prosecution, resulting in him being convicted of assaulting Constad. So the Supreme Court concluded that Cosby's due process rights were violated. The court further barred the prosecution of Cosby on these particular charges. His conviction was overturned. He was released from prison on that same day, which was June 30th, 2021. But fear not. Cosby's legal troubles are not over. In December of 2014, Judith Huth filed a lawsuit alleging that Cosby sexually assaulted her at the Playboy Mansion when she was 15 in 1974. Even though this happened more than 40 years earlier at the time of her filing, California law allows for alleged child sexual abuse victims to bring their cases when they are adults. So the whole thing has kind of been lingering in this legal limbo ever since 2014. And it was postponed pending the outcome of Cosby's criminal trial in Pennsylvania. So two months after his conviction was overturned in June of 2021, Judith's case was revived and a tentative civil trial date has been set for April 18th, 2022. And in October of 2021, 
an actress by the name of Lily Bernard filed a lawsuit in the state of New Jersey, which allows victims of sexual assault to sue regardless of when the offense took place. She claims that Cosby sexually assaulted her numerous times. In August of 1990, she says that he lured her to the Trump Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City with a promise to help advance her career. Instead, she was drugged and raped. The next morning, Cosby issued a threat that if she were to go to the police, that he would sue her for defamation and her career would be in ruins. She is suing for $225 million in damages, which includes $25 million per sexual assault and another $125 million in punitive damages. So moving on from Cosby, an older case that kind of reached some sort of resolution this year was the Kelsey Schilling murder trial. Her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Dante Lucas, was convicted of first-degree murder in Kelsey's 2013 murder. This year, he was convicted in March of 2021. The jury only needed a couple hours to deliberate this one, but it took eight years to actually bring him to trial. The tough part about this case was not only was Kelsey pregnant with Lucas's child at the time that she was killed, her body was never found. So when this went to trial, the defense put up no witnesses on Lucas's behalf and said this case was the biggest stretch in Colorado history. The jury was also reminded that there is no evidence, no DNA, and nothing to indicate that Kelsey is even dead. So I've listened to podcasts about this story, and I'm really glad that this resolution had finally happened. So back in February of 2013, Kelsey was making the drive from Denver, Colorado to Pueblo, Colorado, which is approximately two hours. Lucas told her that he had a surprise for her. She had just found out the day before that she was eight weeks pregnant with Lucas's child, and he was accused of luring her to Pueblo in order to kill her. Her vehicle was found a few days later, and Lucas was seen on video moving her car. One day after she vanished, Lucas was seen at a bank in Pueblo where he took out $400 out of Kelsey's account using her debit card. Later on at Walmart, he was seen dropping her car off, and it was seen being picked up by somebody else. And then an unidentified man was seen getting into the car and dropping it off at a hospital parking lot three days after she disappeared. And when he was interrogated, Lucas admitted to moving her car around, but he denied killing her. Several searches for her body have been conducted over the years to no avail. There is currently a $100,000 reward for information leading to the location of Kelsey's remains. Okay, so let's see, that covers many of the 2021 trials that we've listened to on our various podcasts. I think I've covered one or two here and there. I think the Robert Durst case is on Patreon. I talked about Cosby a couple of years back when he was convicted. Let me think, are we missing somebody here? Hmm. There's that uh, French actor. What's his name? Juicy Smollett, that guy who used to star on the TV show Empire. You know that guy. I'm kidding. I stole that from Dave Chappelle. He has a bit on YouTube, or actually I think it's on Netflix, but there's a clip of it on YouTube. 
his bit on Jesse Smollett. Smollett. I don't, he's got me calling him Smollett. If you're offended by Dave Chappelle, then you probably shouldn't look it up on YouTube. But I found it to be quite funny. So Smollett is a native of California, which is only a tiny reason why he landed a spot on our podcast. A three-parter, in fact. The big reason why he became a guest star on California Dreaming is because in the early morning hours of January 29th, 2019, a 911 call was made in Chicago to report that hungry actor Jesse Smollett was walking in the middle of the night in the middle of a polar vortex to get a Subway sandwich when he was attacked by two masked MAGA hat wearing Empire fans carrying a hot sauce bottle filled with bleach and a noose. They proceeded to shout racist, homophobic slurs at him while they proclaimed that Chicago was MAGA country, drip dropped a bit of a sprinkle of bleach on him, placed this noose around his neck, gave him a little boink on the face, all the while making sure that they don't mess up Jesse's sandwich. Later on, I believe Jesse Smollett would deny saying that the attackers were white, but rather he claimed he described them as being pale. Okay, so we've all seen the picture of the Nigerian brothers who Smollett paid $3,500 to carry out this attack. Clearly, they are not white, but they are also not pale. In fact, they're On the dark end of the spectrum, at least that's what I'm seeing, but definitely not pale. And, you know, for Chicago police, they were called to investigate this attack. And I don't think the story that Smollett alleged even survived to sunrise that day. When I look back on the body cam footage of the officers going into his apartment and the fact that he kept that noose around his neck for show and tell, I'm pretty sure the cops were like, yeah, no. And the officer even said, do you want to like take that off or something? They didn't even like hurry to secure the evidence, make sure it's preserved for forensic testing. Nothing like that happened. Jesse took it off and kind of balled it up and set it on the counter. I think that the cops were pretty sure that this story stunk worse than one of Fred's farts. When I did the three episodes back in July of 2020, starting with episode 150, in case you want to go back and refresh. Some of y'all listening kind of gave me a hard time about how much I harped on the going out on foot for food in the middle of the night, in the middle of sub-freezing temperatures, because I'm a Southern California girl. I might not go out in below zero weather because I don't even know what that is, but it is a thing apparently, and people. Do what you got to do. That's what I got told. You, When you're hungry and you live in this kind of climate, you do what you have to do. I understood that. But it is still a factor at the center of everybody's jokes that everyone makes about Jesse Smollett. So I'm going to stand by what I said. He is a popular actor on a popular show. He made pretty good money, but I guess to him, he was deserving of more. He wasn't home alone. He has his car. His people have cars. There's DoorDash and Uber Eats. I mean, come on. 
the only reason anyone would leave their apartment at that time of night under those conditions is if you had a poorly planned out hate crime hoax with your two workout buddies in order to boost your marketability, popularity, and pay grade, right? Yeah, there's no other reason to go to Subway at two in the morning. Just no. So after the attack was reported, Smollett was taken to a local area hospital where his condition was listed as good. The following day, as the news broke that Smollett, who was both black and gay, was attacked for those reasons by some Trump lovers, a number of celebrities and politicians and notable public figures turned to social media with an outpouring of support, as well as expressions of disbelief that a hate crime such as this was happening in 2019. This is America in 2019, they said. But the very next day, as the Chicago police investigated the attack, Jesse Smollett refused to turn his phone over to the detectives. He said that the reason was is because he had a lot of private contacts and friends and coworkers and pictures and all sorts of things that are on there that he didn't want to hand over. Okay, I get that. But they wanted to confirm some details that Smollett had made, including the fact that he said that he was on the phone with his manager at the time that he was attacked. Looking back on this, and I can't exactly remember if I brought it up in the original episode, but I think that there was speculation that Smollett quite possibly never really intended for this attack to actually be reported and investigated. And I don't think he ever anticipated the attackers would be identified. And when he gave the interview with Robin Roberts a couple of weeks after the alleged attack, he talked about his friend telling him that they were never going to catch these guys. And I think that's what he was hoping for, that he could just live out the fantasy of being a, the target of a racist, homophobic, modern-day lynching without it ever being taken seriously by law enforcement or any of this nonsense ever coming to light, that he could just use what happened as a publicity stunt. So anyway, the police didn't demand that Smollett hand over his phone, insisting that they were treating him as the victim, not a criminal, so they didn't force him to give his phone. On February 1st, a couple of days after the alleged attack, Smollett spoke out publicly for the first time, saying that he was doing okay after this incident. He was quoted, The outpouring of love and support from my village has meant more than I will ever be able to truly put into words. I'm working with authorities and have been 100% consistent on every level. Also on that day, police had released some video footage of two persons of interest that they wanted to try and identify in some surveillance footage. And this was a major development in their investigation. And then on the following day, on February 2nd, at a concert, Smollett made the announcement that he was the gay Tupac. He said, I'm not fully healed yet, but I'm going to. Just because there's been a lot of stuff said about me, that's absolutely not true. I'm sure my lawyer's sitting up there like, no, Jesse, no. Above all, I fought back. I'm the gay Tupac. On February 11th, 13 days after the alleged attack, Smollett gave the police a PDF file of his phone records. He was still refusing to turn over his cell phone. And the file that he submitted was heavily redacted. The police continued to insist that there was no reason to suspect any wrongdoing on Smollett's part and that they weren't even looking at charges regarding filing a false police report. 
They were probably crossing their fingers behind their backs and snickering and wink winking at each other when nobody was looking when they made that statement. (laughs) Because it kind of sounds like they had full intentions of filing charges against him because that's where this was headed at this point. On February 14th, the two persons of interest that were seen in those surveillance images were arrested. Hey, quiet. There's some um, landscapers outside the window, and I have it closed, but my dogs can hear them shouting at each other, and hopefully they don't turn on their leaf blowers because I don't know if my mic will pick up that sound. But anyway, the dogs were about to go off and start barking, but they stopped themselves. So good doggies. Okay. Oh, where was I? (sighs) Okay. So the two persons of interest were arrested. The brothers, Ola and Abel Asandario. At least one of them had been an extra on Empire. And they occasionally went to the gym with Smollett. Some of the items that the police collected from their home included face masks, a script, or maybe like a ski mask, a script from Empire, their cell phones, some receipts, a red hat, and bleach. This same day is when Smollett's interview with Robert Roberts aired on Good Morning America. On the interview, in the interview, he defended his decision to refuse to turn over his phone. He suggested that people probably would have supported him more if he had said that the attackers were Muslims or Mexicans or black. And through his tears, Smollett said that gay people should learn to fight back against these types of attacks. That same day, Chicago police were still holding back. They were reporting that they didn't have any evidence supporting the reports that the attacks were staged. Three days later, on February 17th, the entire direction of the Smollett case was shifting. Chicago police announced that there had been some developments in the investigation and that they've released the Ascendario brothers without charging them, and they wanted to speak to the individuals who reported the attack. Smollett's attorneys issued a statement to the media stating that Jesse is angered and devastated by the recent reports that the perpetrators of the attack are individuals that he is actually familiar with and added that it is impossible to believe that the Ascendarios could have played a role in this crime against Jesse or would have falsely claimed Jesse's complicity. Then, three days after that, Jesse Smollett is charged with disorderly conduct and filing a false police report. Footage was obtained by the media that appeared to be showing the Ascendario brothers purchasing the materials used in the alleged attack, including ski masks, rope, and a red hat. Smollett's attorney stated that they are going to conduct a thorough investigation and mount an aggressive defense. The same day, the memes were cropping up all over social media. I think they had started trickling in, but once the charges were brought against Smollett, they really came hard. 50 Cent made one himself. I think he made it. At least that's what is said. With Smollett's face superimposed on Tupac's All Eyes on Me album cover, and the title of the album was changed to read All Lies on Me. On February 21st, Smollett was arrested and booked. He had turned himself in. 
At a press conference, the Chicago police superintendent, Eddie Johnson, stated that Smollett had taken advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career because he was dissatisfied with his salary. He also disclosed the information about the racist letter that was sent to Fox Studios addressed to Smollett and said that Smollett mailed that letter to himself and that he paid the Osendario brothers by check the amount of $3,500 to help him stage the attack. Fox Entertainment issued a statement saying that they were evaluating Smollett's situation as they considered their options and his future on Empire. Former president and former Twitter user Trump tweeted at Smollett, calling his actions racist and dangerous. And in court that same day, the judge, John Fitzgerald, stated the worst part of this whole fiasco was the news. After the hearing, Smollett's attorney called the whole thing an organized law enforcement spectacle. Later that same day, Smollett walked out of the courthouse after posting $10,000 bail. On February 22nd, Smollett was suspended from his role in Empire with producers issuing a statement that he will not be included in the final two episodes left in that season and added that the allegations against him were disturbing. On February 25th, an image of the check that Smollett wrote to the Ascendario brothers was released to the media. It had been backdated to January 23rd that said, five-week nutrition workout program. No Go, written in the memo line, and No Go is the name of a music video that Smollett was going to shoot, which is why he needed to get into shape, he said. On March 1st, the Osendario brothers released a statement through their attorney where they said that they regretted getting involved in this mess, that they have tremendous regrets over this, that they understand how it has impacted people across the nation, particularly minority communities, especially those who have been real victims of hate crimes themselves. On March 14th, Smollett pleaded not guilty to all the charges against him, which were 16 in total. His next court date was scheduled for April. What is going to happen to his career at this point on Empire was still kind of up in the air. On March 20th, the creator of the show, Lee Daniel, said in an Instagram video that the whole, the whole ordeal had been painful and caused a lot of anger over what Smollett and the whole cast have had to go through, and he really didn't know how he was going to deal with it. Twelve days later, Jesse Smollett was cleared of all charges. An emergency court hearing was held where all the charges against him were effectively dropped, his record was white, wiped clean, and the records were sealed. However, Chicago police and the mayor stood by the case that they made against Smollett and criticized the dropping of all the charges, stating in part that it was Mr. Smollett who committed this hoax. If he wants to clear his name, the way to do that is in a court of law so everyone can see the evidence. On March 27th, Smollett's attorney announced that the case is officially closed. The prosecutor who dropped the charges, Joe Maggots, Magats said that he thinks Smollett is guilty, but the charges were dropped because he forfeited his bond, which was $10,000, and he would complete 16 hours of community service. 
Smollett's attorney stated that the case was closed and the public has no right to further violate Smollett's civil rights and the case was dismissed and Mr. Smollett should just be allowed to move on with his life and leave this all behind. On March 28th, Trump tweeted again that the dropping of the charges was outrageous and an embarrassment to the nation. And he also said that, you know what, the FBI and the Department of Justice would now be investigating this case. The next day, Smollett was ordered to pay for the police overtime dedicated to the investigation into the staged attack, which amounted to $130,000, time that they say was spent reviewing hours and hours of video, surveillance, footage, and physical evidence, and that was time that could have been spent working on non-hoaxy crimes. On April 12th, Smollett refused to pay the $130,000 because if he did, that would, in a roundabout way, kind of be admitting to that the whole thing was faked. So in order to be like, this was a real crime, so you guys were doing your real job, so he, he can't pay it. So the city of Chicago filed a lawsuit against Smollett in an effort to recover the money spent on the, this investigation into him. They want to be compensated for their time as they continue to believe that the attack was staged. But Smollett refused to pay. He's dug his heels in and he insists this attack was for reals. On April 23rd, the Osendario brothers filed a lawsuit against Smollett's attorneys for defamation, claiming that they were still being accused of carrying out a racist and homophobic attack against Smollett and that their reputations were being damaged as a result. While Smollett's attorneys called the lawsuit comical and ridiculous. Well, if that isn't a situation of the pot calling the kettle black, then I don't know what is. On April 30th, Fox Studios announced that while Empire had been renewed for a sixth and final season, there were no plans for Smollett's character to return. He had been on the show since 2015. He was making like $65,000 to $100,000 per episode. So I don't know what the hell this guy was complaining about. I would love to be making that kind of money per episode of California Dreaming. I'd be making these all the time if that were the case. But you all know that I don't make any money doing this because I do this for the love of doing it, right? Yeah, that's exactly the reasons why I do it. I must be because I don't, not only do I not make money, I spend money to produce this show. So anything I make from this comes from the goodness of your hearts over on Patreon. That's the premium content. That's the stuff that you guys pay for, which by the way, there is a new episode up and it's kind of a tearjerker. So if you do join and you do take a listen, be prepared and have your tissues with you because that's a, a very sad story. Two sad stories. So anyway, back to good old Jesse. On June 24th, police body cam footage of Smollett with a noose around his neck was released to the media. An officer asks, do you want to take it off or anything? And Smollett replied, Yes, I do. I just wanted you to see it. There was a lot of footage released that day by the Chicago police in addition to the news footage, including video of the Osendario brothers taking a rideshare and a taxi cab through the night to arrive and leave from the scene of the attack. So fast forward to February 12th of 2020, 
Smollett was slapped with six brand new criminal charges by special prosecutor Dan Webb, who was assigned to investigate how the initial case was handled. The six charges were of lying to police. And then the world was hit with the COVID pandemic and everything kind of stayed in limbo. That is until Smollett's trial began this year on November 29th, 2021. At the trial, the prosecution alleged that Smollett paid the Ostendario brothers to carry out the staged attack in order to further his career because he was unhappy with his salary on Empire. That Smollett had developed a secret plan that would make it appear that there was actually a hate crime that occurred against him by Trump supporters. During the trial, Smollett claimed that the check that he wrote to the brothers was for a meal and nutrition and workout plan with Abel Ostendario and that the two of them had had a sexual relationship. In his testimony, Smollett repeatedly denied that he was involved in any kind of hoax and that he did not call the police because as a black man in America, he does not trust the police. The defense insisted that Smollett had been the victim of a real attack by the Ostendario brothers who enjoyed their proximity to the star and wanted to scare him into getting him to hire them as his personal security detail. The prosecutor stated that Smollett was really dissatisfied with the muted reaction that he got from Fox Studios regarding that that hate letter that he had sent himself and received just a few days before the attack that was addressed to him there at the studio. It had a stick figure hanging from a noose, a homophobic slur and MAGA written on it. Smollett came up with this plan so that the studio executives would take his situation more seriously because they got the letter and didn't do anything about it. It didn't work. So he had to up his game with this hoax attack. The Austin Dario brothers testified that Smollett planned, orchestrated, and directed the entire thing because he was upset at his studio's lack of concern about his safety after the hate mail he received. There were messages on Instagram from Smollett to Abel Ostendario shortly before the attack where Smollett is giving him updates on his delayed flight. There was video surveillance footage presented of the men meeting up for a practice run of the attack. And there was a text message that Smollett had sent to Abel four days before the attack in which he asked for help on the low. Abel said that that was sent right before he was asked to help out with the staging of the attack. Smollett, who took the stand, was questioned for several hours about the attack. The prosecutor pointed out that he was good friends with Abel Ostendario and that he was familiar with what he sounded like and his physical build, and yet he described the attackers as being white. The belief is that Smollett never wanted this attack to be reported and he never wanted the Ostendario brothers to get caught. But he did want the publicity and the sympathy that came along with being the victim of such a brutal modern day lynching. This is why he misled police by describing the attackers as white or pale and being Trump lovers. In an effort to poke holes in the prosecution's assertion that he staged the attack for publicity and a pay raise by saying that he got hate mail at Fox Studios, Smollett said that Empire producers wanted him to be driven by security guards to and from the set every day, but he refused. 
He claimed that Abel Asendario persistently suggested to be hired as his personal bodyguard. Smollett claimed that the reason why he updated Abel about his flight delay is because they were supposed to work out together on January 27th. And that was the date that the dry run took place. Smollett had picked up Abel along with his brother. And when it came to the request for the help on the low, Smollett claimed that that was for the brothers to purchase some herbal steroids that could help him lose weight, which are illegal in the United States. You know, the one interesting thing about this case is it's one of the few where I think everybody, no matter where you stand on any other political or social issue, everybody agrees that Jesse Smollett messed up big time. Usually, there's like this whole big divide, like, did he do it? Did he not do it? Like O.J. Simpson and Adnan Syed and Scott Peterson and Darley Routier and Stephen Avery and the owl. I'm pretty sure that the only person who thinks Jesse Smollett didn't stage this hoax is Jesse Smollett. And even that's debatable. The problem is, from some of the things that are being said, Smollett is just too darned narcissistic to ever admit to the truth. Is he going to ride this lie out forever? The New York Post described him as being in this matrix of arrogance. I mean, he's still got to face sentencing, and his testimony was so blatantly untruthful that there's even talk about him being charged with perjury. Do they really want to do that to him? I don't know. Was it even necessary? Personally, I don't think so. I think the humiliation of all of this is punishment enough. But I think prosecutors just want it to be known that the possibility is out there just so that everybody gets it, that Jesse Smollett wasn't pulling the wool over on anybody. Everybody knows that you lied. The New York Post describes Smollett as stoic and defiant as ever after being found guilty of staging the hate crime. And prosecutors are going to highlight at his sentencing next month in January of 2022, the hours and hours and hours that he sat there on the stand and told lie after lie. And if it's remorse that the judge is going to look for at sentencing, what are the chances that that's going to happen when it looks like he's really going to stick to his guns here? According to the Post, in which they wrote, according to experts, stubbornness is among the textbook signs of a narcissistic personality disorder that Smollett seems to exhibit, and that this may have been exacerbated by growing up in the family that he did. Dr. Ramani Dervasula, a clinical psychologist and expert on narcissism, stated, when someone launches something like this, there's a grandiose assumption that they'll be able to get away with it. Then it slides into something delusional, and then the delusion becomes the truth, and then it becomes the truth that he lives in. This becomes his reality. Well, maybe that's how people get into acting like this. People like 
Jesse Smollett. The doctor said it's the reason why Smollett didn't just knock this off way back in the beginning when his story was starting to show cracks. It just doesn't work like that for narcissists. And she further stated, nothing cuts through the matrix of this arrogance and delusion and entitlement. They're all defenses against a deep wall of insecurity and inadequacy. Anyone who walks around like this is covering up a stench and it's something that they don't want others to smell. The article also said that this had to do with the way that Smollett was raised with his six siblings who stand by each other. No matter what happens, they stand by each other. No questions asked. And with the level of strong support that Smollett initially received from very powerful individuals, all of this didn't help when what Smollett really needed was for someone to slap him across the face and tell him to get honest with himself and be straightforward with the story. Instead, existing in this bubble of extraordinary and unconditional support only enables somebody like Smollett to refuse to cave in, no matter how abundantly clear it is that they've been defeated. Chicago police have said that they would have never arrested Smollett if he would have just apologized. I don't know about that. That sounds like something that they would say to you in an interrogation room. Things like, we're here to help you. You need to help us help you. You can trust us. We're on your side. The truth will set you free. You know, that kind of junk that they tell you when they're being interrogated, when you're suspected of a crime, and you decide to talk when you know that you need to ask for an attorney and shut up. But anyway, with the guilty verdict, Jesse Smollett is facing up to three years in prison for the charges that he was convicted of. He's scheduled to be sentenced in January. Is this a prison-worthy crime? I really want to know your thoughts when we post about this episode on social media. Chances are, no matter how long Smollett is sentenced to in terms of jail time, he'll probably only be in for a very short period of time. Prisons really aren't for people like him who do things like this, at least not any long prison terms. And honestly, I think it would serve him better and be a bit more humbling to give him like a thousand hours of community service. Then perhaps he'll finally drop the charade and apologize, seek help, and find some way to redeem himself. So in all of my searches for Smollett News on YouTube and whatnot, I got prompted to an episode of American Justice that was about some infamous hoaxes. This was before the Smollett fiasco, when this show was produced. There was a story about how game shows were rigged in the 1950s when TVs were becoming a thing. Then there was a story about some guy named Mark Hoffman who was creating forgeries of old Mormon documents. There were a couple of more stories, but the last one was a story that I hadn't heard of before. And I'll just give you a summary of it. So back in November of 1987, a 15-year-old named Tawana Brawley from Wappinger Falls, New York, 
went missing for four days before she was discovered tied up in a trash bag. Chunks of her hair had been allegedly yanked out of her scalp. Her body and hair were smeared with feces. Racial slurs were scrawled all over her body using charcoal. The letters KKK, the word bitch, and the N-word. Her clothing had been ripped and burned. She had been sexually assaulted. It was a brutal and shocking crime that really had the community shaken. It was not only the details of this hate crime that were so jarring, it was the fact that Tawana said that her attackers were white men, and she'd even said that one of them was a police officer. Following the attack, three prominent civil rights activists and attorneys came forward to assist Tawana while bringing nationwide attention to her case. Alton Maddox, C. Vernon Mason, and Al Sharpton. They're referred to her as her advisors or her handlers. When Tawana was found, she appeared to be unconscious and unresponsive. When detectives came to question her at the hospital, she was still unresponsive, at which point her mother asked for a black detective to be sent to speak to her. So they did. They brought an African-American detective in. When that officer arrived, Tawana was still seemingly very out of it. She wasn't very verbally responsive, giving only a series of head nods and shoulder shrugs. The only word she ever said was neon. And most of what she was able to tell the investigator, she did through writing notes. She wrote that she had been raped outdoors in the woods numerous times over the course of four days by six white men. And she knew at least one of them to be a police officer. At that time, Tawana didn't provide any names of her attackers, nor was she able to describe any of them. At the hospital, a rape kit was taken. But then shortly later on, Tawana said that she had actually not been raped, but rather sexually abused in other ways. Tests ultimately revealed that there hadn't been any kind of sexual assault, rape, or otherwise. There was also no evidence that she had been exposed to the cold New York November winter, which the nights had been going below freezing during that time of year. Tawana claimed to have been held captive in the woods that entire time, yet there was no signs of exposure. So when the news about Tawana's alleged hate crime hit the media, the response was similar to the response that Subway Smollett got. There was an outpouring of sympathy. Bill Cosby offered a reward of $25,000 for information leading to arrest, and that's gross. Boxing promoter and convicted killer Don King pledged $100,000 towards sending Tawana to college. I mean, she's got all the upstanding celebrities standing up for her, right? It gets better. In December, in support of Tawana, over a thousand people marched in New York, led by Louis Farrakhan. Rallies across the nation were held, and once Tawana's handlers became heavily involved in this, her case came to be more and more controversial as they pushed the narrative that the government was perpetrating an orchestrated cover-up of what happened to Tawana because the attackers were white 
And they further accused the KKK and the Irish Republican Army and the mafia of being co-conspirators in this cover-up. Then things took an even worse turn. There was a New York police officer named Harry Christ who took his own life a short time after the time Tawana claimed to have been held captive. His suicide immediately led to him becoming a suspect in the attacks. That's when Dutchess County Assistant District Attorney Stephen Pagones stepped in and said that Harry Christ had an alibi because they were together during the time period that Tawana was attacked. That's when Tawana's three advisors, her handlers, publicly stated that both Christ and Pagones were two of the white men who attacked and raped Tawana. However, a suicide note that Christ left behind indicated that the reasons that he ended his own life was because his girlfriend had recently broken up with him and that he wanted to become a state trooper but was unable to. Mind you, while all of this ruckus and hubbub is going on, the media has published Tawana's name as well as pictures of her, including ones that were taken at the hospital that were leaked, even though she was the victim of an alleged sexual assault and she was only 15 years old. There was also concern that she had been turned back over to the care of her mother and stepfather even though state law dictates that Child Protective Services is supposed to intervene and take custody of a child when there is a sexual assault. Tawana's handlers claimed that if these things had been handled appropriately, then the rape evidence would have been better preserved. By the summer of the following year, 1988, six months after the attack, It was starting to become clear that the civil rights activists and attorneys, the trio that I mentioned, Maddox, Mason, and Sharpton, it was clear that they were using Tawana's case to become, quote, the biggest N-words in New York, according to one of their former aides, who overheard this being said in a conversation. The controversy surrounding Tawana's case was peaking by this time, when a poll was taken, found that 51% of blacks that were questioned believed that Tawana was lying, and 85% of whites questioned believed that she was lying. So, in October of 1988, the report from the grand jury that had been convened to weigh the evidence was released, and it was 170 pages long. And the grand jury found that Tawana had not been attacked had not been kidnapped, had not been sexually assaulted in any manner as she and her advisors had been alleging. They also found that there was no evidence or basis for the allegations that had been made against Assistant District Attorney Steve Bagonis. Their report highlighted the problematic issues that they found in Tawana's case, including the rape kit indicating that there had been no sexual assault, The fact that she had claimed to have been outdoors for four days, yet showed no signs of exposure to freezing weather, no hypothermia. She appeared to have been fed and given water, and it was pretty clear that she was brushing her teeth regularly. Her clothing was burned, but her skin was not. A shoe that she had on was sliced up, but her foot was not injured. The racial slurs written on her body were upside down, leading investigators to believe that she wrote the words herself. 
The feces on her body were identified as belonging to her neighbor's dog. There was also a witness who actually saw Tawana getting into the garbage bag on her own. And friends from her school testified that Tawana was at a house party that took place right in the middle of the time frame that she had claimed to have been abducted. And Tawana refused to testify. Despite being ordered to do so, she never spoke a word about the alleged attack, with the exception of what little she said to the media about it back in 1987 while flanked by her advisors. And to this day, Tawana has not spoken a word about the alleged hate crime hoax that she was a part of. And uh, really, I don't blame her. In fact, she left New York. She changed her name. She had moved to Virginia. She converted to Islam. She got an attack-trained bull mastiff, and she works as a nurse. The grand jury speculated that the motive behind the hoax was to avoid facing punishment from her mother and her stepfather, Glenda Brawley and Ralph King. It was mainly her stepfather, though, I believe. There had been some witnesses called to testify at the grand jury hearing who stated that Tawana had been beaten by her mother in the past for running away from home and staying overnight with various boyfriends. Stepdad Ralph King had a documented history of domestic violence, including having stabbed his first wife 14 times, shooting her and killing her. That was in the 1970s, and he served seven years for that. In May of 1987, six months before the staged attack, Tawana had been arrested for shoplifting. When her dad arrived to pick her up, he attempted to beat her right there inside the police station. He was known to not only be violent towards Tawana, but he also spoke about her in sexually inappropriate ways. The day that Tawana claimed that she was kidnapped, it was revealed she'd actually skipped school to go visit her boyfriend in jail. In fact, it was her mom, Glenda, who took her to see him and told her daughter that she needed to get home or else she was going to get in trouble to not be home too late. Glenda knew that her boyfriend, Tawana's so-called stepdad, would punish her with a beating if she got home too late. Neighbors also testified that they heard Tawana's mom and stepdad discussing having donated money related to the attack and the possibility of being found out that it was staged. The only criminal charge ever made was against Tawana's mom. She was found to be in contempt of court for refusing to testify at the grand jury. She was ordered to spend 30 days in jail and pay $250. But she apparently avoided all of that. She avoided being arrested by hiding out in churches. And from there, she, Tawana, and the stepdad left New York. They kind of drifted around the United States for a while and eventually relocated to Virginia Beach. Stephen Pagonis, the only person alive named as being one of Tawana's rapists, won defamation lawsuits in the amount of $345,000 against her advisors. Sharpton was found liable for making seven defamatory statements. Maddox was found to have made two, and Mason was found to have made one. He also sued Tawana, and he won that case by default because she didn't show up for trial. She was ordered to pay $185,000. Al Sharpton's portion of the judgment was paid by funds raised by his supporters. Maddox paid his portion in full, 
and Mason was last known to be making payments on what he owed in the judgment. As for Tawana, as of 2013, an article had said that she had paid about $3,700, which amounts to approximately 1% of the judgment against her. From what I understand, her wages from her job as a nurse were being garnished at a rate of $627 a month. So if she's been working steadily ever since, then that should still be going on unless she quit or changed jobs, which would interrupt the garnishments. In 2007, on the 20th anniversary of Tawana's attack, the New York Daily News tracked down Glinda Brawley and Ralph King, who were still together, living in the tiny rural town of Claremont, Virginia. People there knew of the story, but they didn't know how close the story was living to them. The couple spoke to the Daily News for a couple of hours, apparently at an Applebee's. They revealed the information that I shared with you a moment ago about the update on Tawana. They said that she had gone to school at Howard University and her job knows her as Tawana Thompson. She isn't married and nobody is allowed to photograph her ever. The one thing Glenda and Ralph stood firm on is that Tawana was raped, so they say. They said that they were speaking publicly to implore the governor at the time, Elliot Spitzer, another disgraced person in this story, right? And Attorney General at the time, Andrew Cuomo. I repeat, another disgraced person in the story, right? My God, what is happening? Okay, so her parents, her mom and her stepdad, said that they wanted this case to be reopened, Tawana's rape case. I mean, what the hell? To me, it kind of sounds like another cash grab. Again, they're doing it again. The Daily News quoted Glinda as saying, how could we make this up and take down the state of New York? We're just regular people. We should be millionaires. I don't really know what all that means. But she continued, they pulled her hair out by the roots, scribbled nasty things all over her. I carried her out of the hospital in my arms. She had no clothes on. We wrapped her in a sheet. The feces was still in her hair. Her parents want the records unsealed because they believe there is proof in there that Stephen Pagonis and Harry Crist raped Tawana, and the state of New York covered it up because they were never going to want to convict a white man of raping a black woman. Glinda insisted that if the state unsealed their files, Tawana would break her silence and tell her story. She said, we are going to fight this case all the way to the end. The rapists ain't going to heaven with something weighing heavy on them. Maybe they'll release it after all these years. I can look my daughter in her big brown eyes and myself in the mirror. Can they? Glenda says that Tawana is now Muslim, but she doesn't wear a hijab. She became interested in it when she met Louis Farrakhan. They said Tawana freely travels the world and is protected by any mosque if she ever needs help. The friends that she has now know nothing about her past, but she has continued to be flooded with support by those who do. They never speak to Tawana about the case ever, 
Nobody in the family ever speaks of it. However, Glenda still has a small piece of paper from all those years ago in the hospital where Tawana wrote the words white cop on it. Glenda stated in the interview, New York is scared of my name. When they hear Brawley, they think here comes a problem. But the state of New York owes my daughter. They owe her the truth. The court that ruled on the civil lawsuits against Tawana and her advisors said that this case is finally laid to rest. But Glenda Brawley promises that will never happen, not the way the state of New York has left things. So that was an interesting case. And I did see some articles recently bring up Tawana Brawley in light of what has been going on with Jesse Smollett. Now, this girl, I mean, it sounds like the parents attempting to pull off a hate crime hoax to profit off of it. But it also sounds like Tawana was a pretty troubled teenager and getting into some destructive behaviors. But it also sounds like this girl was being severely abused at home. Abused and used for profit. But look, we know Jesse, when he pulled off his little hate crime hoax, he had a little boink on his face and a little tap tap here and there, ruffled up his hair and dripped a smidgen of bleach. But he clearly wanted the very bare minimum of ouchies and boo-boos. But when you look at what happened to Tawana, the feces smeared on her, her hair pulled out, stuffed into a garbage bag. I mean, that's pretty extreme. So it has some believing that if she was able to do that to herself to avoid getting in trouble, just imagine the abuse that she was attempting to avoid. So who is the hoaxiest of them all? Well, I'm going to have to give that award to good old Subway Smollett. I think Tawana's fear was used by both her parents and the civil rights activists and attorneys for attention and money. I still feel like on some level that Tawana was victimized. Perhaps it wasn't a hate crime, but she was a victim. She was only 15. Jesse Smollett, he is a privileged, grown-ass man who keeps on whining because he didn't get his way. He just needs to shove a foot long in it and maybe go on some kind of spiritual journey to go find himself. But, dreamers, before I sign off, I wanted to quickly tell you about the new season of a podcast that I think my listeners will really enjoy. It's a true crime hit called Lost Hills, and they're back after a fantastic first season with season number two entitled Dead in the Water. This takes place in the late 1970s and early 80s in Malibu, California. The once quiet beach town was transforming into a haven for celebrities with lots of money and lots of drugs. In 1981, a Malibu woman and her son mysteriously drowned while sailing off the coast of California. Her husband was arrested for their murders, but to this day, 
Even the victim's own family claims that he's innocent. It's an intense story that I know that my dreamers are going to enjoy. So get ready for one of the most interesting stories that you will hear. You can find Lost Hills across all the platforms wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, dreamers, I want to thank you all so much for listening to this look back at the cases that grabbed our attention in 2021. I'm sure that we have so much more to look forward to in 2022. Personally, I'd like to see more cold cases being solved because of familial DNA and genetic, you know, matches and advances in that technology being used to solve these cases that have gotten cold for so many decades. I'd also like to see some progress being made in the 2017 murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. I'm also anxious to see what goes on with those end-of-day wackadoos, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. They need to pay for what they did to those children. I'm curious to see what happens to some of these parents who might be getting in trouble for the murders that their children commit, namely the Crumbleys up in Michigan for the four students that they helped their son, Ethan Crumbly, murder on November 30th, and the Laundries, Christopher and Roberta. If they had knowledge that Gabby Petito was dead and that their son had murdered her and left her in Wyoming and withheld information, I don't know if there's a crime anywhere in that, but if there is, I like to see them slapped with some charges. But anyway, I don't know if this is going to be the last episode that we will hear of California Dreaming this year. It might not be. I've always got something on my mind that I want to do. But just in case it is, I want to wish you all a very wonderful holiday season. I want to thank you for helping me survive 2021. I am looking forward to a much easier 2022. I'm happy that you all are still with me after all of this. Please take care. I love you all. And until next time, sweet dreams.